0: Some of the greatest dialogues in human history are recorded in Scripture between the Lord Jesus Christ and many people. The Samaritan woman is one in chapter 4, Pilate chapter 18. Pilate represented all the best that that human authority could ever present. Government authority and an incredible contrast between his authority of Rome and the world and Jesus' authority of the kingdom of heaven. You see in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, the, the best of what the world would say is a social outcast. And yet the Lord Jesus had, for those who were pariahs, as some have often called He had great love and compassion on her. Today, we find ourselves in one of the most intriguing dialogues in human history. It's between Jesus and Nicodemus, the the teacher, the teacher of teachers, the teacher of the Pharisees, the one who supposedly is to know all these things, and yet he has no idea of what's going on. Now, what I've provided for you in the worship guide for your study today are some opening historical, cultural, and textual dynamics that are part of that conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus had. We're not going to go through them. This is my my morning gift to you. I want you to have the opportunity to look at these, perhaps later this week, after you've unwrapped your presents, after you've eaten everything you needed to eat. And you've got some time to to ponder everything that you've experienced over these last few days and and, and see the disconnect that exists between Nicodemus' understanding and Jesus' words. But what we are going to do is catch this conversation between the two in verse 14. So follow with me not only in your Bible, but also in your in your, your notes in the worship God, if you would like to at verse 14 because Jesus' words, he is appealing here to Nicodemus's understanding of Jewish history. And he's looking at him and he's saying, Nicodemus, do, do you remember of that account where Moses lifted up the serpent, the snake in the wilderness? And of course, Nicodemus would remember it but he didn't understand the spiritual significance of it. So I want to ask you now to keep your finger here at John chapter three, but I want you to turn in your Bibles. It's just a brief passage in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, turn with me there. Because you can't understand John 3.16 unless you understand 3.14, it's that simple. So in Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4, we find these words. From Mount Or, they, meaning the Israelites, set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Edom is the land of Esau, you may recall. And the people became impatient. Say that word with me impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe. That's a fancy word that basically means we detest, we are disgusted. With this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent." Now, stop there for just a minute, why bronze? Archaeological evidence is showing that where they believe that was, that was done, there were copper mines. And so it, it sounds reasonable that they would mine some of the copper that was nearby and forge it into this bronze serpent. Get it back to verse nine. So Moses made the bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now that is the account that Jesus is wanting to make to Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. So what is the setting? The setting in verses 4 and 5 is that the children of Israel became impatient. Hello, do you ever get impatient? They became impatient. And they spoke out against Moses and against God. So what does God do? He sends these fiery serpents, these... And you know what? I don't think they're little snakes. I think they were big snakes who had a lot of venom in them. And they bit the people. And many of them, it says in verse 6, died as a result of it. And so the people come to Moses in repentance, in their pain, in their brokenness, in their hurt, in their unfilled expectations, in their disgust and they come to Moses and they repent and they confess and they ask Moses to intercede to pray to God on their behalf. So Moses does. And so the action that comes out of Moses' prayer to God is God commands Moses in verse 8 to make this serpent of copper or bronze, as it's called, and set it on a high pole. Chris, if you'll throw that up again, that picture of the... That's me in the country of Jordan at what is known as Mount Moriah, the place where many believe it's one of two burial sites attributed to where Moses was buried. And it was at that very high, lifted up, lifted up probably 15 or more feet high, maybe 20. Those far away could look, and with the eye of faith, God would hear their prayers of faith, of healing, and he would heal them. Now, here's the important thing to remember about this. John has, in his gospel, recorded this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, which was probably sometime around A.D. 28, roughly, 29, roughly. But those that are reading this gospel are reading it in the early A.D. 90s because that's when most people believe the gospel of John was written and published. The late 80s, early A.D. 90s. So there's been 60 or more years at least that have gone by. Yes, the apostle John, as he lived in Ephesus, he was preaching many of these great themes that he recorded in his gospel for more than 50 years. But in addition to the Jewish audience that was at Ephesus, there was also a large gentile audience at Ephesus. And there are some here in this room, along with me, who have been to the ancient city of Ephesus. And you know that in the ancient city of Ephesus, at at the heart of the city are the remains of what was, no, what was then known as the Temple of Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. And the symbol of the, of the Greek god of healing, Asclepius, is a serpent wrapped around a pole. You see it in the medical world today. And so both for a Jewish audience who understood the bronze, stake, uh, bronze snake event, And for a Gentile audience who from mythology would understand the healing powers of Asclepius and Dionysius, what was going on here is the Apostle John was recording an account to show both Jew and Gentile that Jesus now is the one that can provide healing for the deepest recesses of your life. He's the one that can provide you the hope, the peace, the comfort, the joy that you so desperately need. And it's in that shadow of the bronze serpent event for the Jew, and in the shadow of the image of the Greek god Dionysius with the serpent wrapped around a pole, appealing to the Gentile audience, that The Apostle John is appealing to his Gentile readers in Ephesus that Jesus tells Nicodemus and John later the Gentiles of the great love of God. You cannot understand John 3.16 either as a Jew or as a Gentile without understanding the bronze serpent. It's that simple. Because when you look at the bronze serpent, or for that matter, the the symbol of the snake on a pole of Asclepius, when you look at either one of them, you see all different kinds of images coming into play. For, For the Jew, you see this image of judgment. You see this image of poison. Something that is being judged, the instrument of judgment is now being set up on a pole so that now it becomes an instrument of healing. For the Greek, a snake on a pole is a symbol of, you, you've heard at around Valentine's Day, you get bit with a love potion. Remember that? What's going on with that audience is that there's a good potion, a healing potion that's being offered for you. After all, in the temple of Asclepius in ancient Ephesus, those who were sick would come into the temple. The priests in the temple would tell them to lie down on the floor and go to bed at night. And when they were asleep at night, they would release the ancient serpents to slide all over the place on the floor. And then they would come back in the morning... And they would ask those who were sick, who were sleeping on the floor to record any dreams that they might have. And from those dreams, they would prescribe a cure. Isn't that good medicine, huh? Huh, yeah. Yeah. Sign me up for that one, Uh huh? Yeah, I'm sure. But in either case, whether it's Jew or Gentile, you have A symbol of poison, because anything that's outside the body coming in is, in effect, a poison. It's a toxin. Whether it be a snake bite or something else, it is supposed to provide healing, and yet that very symbol is set up on a pole for people to see. Now, I don't know about you, I hate snakes. Do I have anybody with me on that? Anybody, anybody not like snakes? And I got to be honest with you, every time I think about snakes, I know I'm going to show my age, but I got to show it to you. I'm reminded of that scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Oh, it get, hey, it's going to get better. You're going to see it. That, and it's only going to be One minute. So if you, don't, if you don't like looking at Satan, just turn, just turn away for about, just about 45, 50 seconds, okay? Please, please. But I want to get you in the mood so we can understand why John 3.16 is so valuable. It's that scene where Indiana Jones uncovers the, 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 the door that opens up the chamber. Some of you are just nodding your head. You agree with me right now and he looks down, and he turns over, and he just says, snakes. And so he, they begin to lower him down into this pit where supposedly the ark is, and uh, this is now what happens. <laughs> I don't know about you. The hair is standing on the back of my neck right now. I mean, serious. I, I have always my dad, who's by the way was born in Hemingway, South Carolina, over here in Williamsburg County. I mean, he was on a farm. He saw a lot of big snakes in his day. I grew up in Central Virginia along the James River and the Appomattox River, the two two of the oldest rivers navigationally charted in the history of this country. And when I was a kid, we would, we would walk along the Appomattox and the James River, literally, and we would be picking up Indian arrowheads all over the place. It was so close to my home. And let me tell you, I saw some of the biggest water moccasins that I have ever seen in my life and some, the longest one ever recorded was in the dismal swamp between North Carolina and Virginia, 74 inches long. I saw some nearly four feet. No kidding, I'm not making that up when I was a kid growing up. I don't know about you, but I like the words that my dad said to me a long time ago, son, a good snake, it, say it with me, a good snake, it's a dead snake. That's right. And that's what's going on in a sense. The imagery that's con- being conveyed here from Jesus to Nicodemus, something had to die. Or someone. The Israelites who, who were bit and who did not have faith, they died. That's what the text says in Numbers 21. However... The instrument of death was fashioned on a pole to hang. And those who were ill, those who were hurting, those who were grieving, those who were murmuring, complaining, they looked with faith and they lived. And it's from there that Jesus tells Nicodemus that if you understand that bronze snake in Numbers 21, let me tell you about the love of God. Just as God loved Israel in the Old Testament and showed his love by not allowing many of them to remain in their poison and in their grief and in their murmuring and in their detestable nature but would look in faith and believe they would live when you look at John three sixteen, say that with me probably the very first Bible verse you ever learned in your life right for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want to submit to you, when you look at that verse in light of the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21, it shows us three things about the love of God. And I have them there in your notes. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna expound on them because I want you to get, prepare your heart to come back tonight for our evening lessons and carol service. But it does show us three things about the amazing, immeasurable, immense love of God. First of all, it shows us the missional love of God. The world that Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus is the world of both Jew and Gentile. The world is the focus of God's love. It's both quantitative and qualitative. It's to this world just like Israel in Nicodemus's mind, it's this world that is broken, it is hurt, it is in conflict, it is disgusting, it is murmuring, it is complaining, it is grumbling, and you can add 15 more of them on directives that you would want to add on to that. It is to that kind of cesspool of grief and mourning and hurt and pain and struggle and anger and oppression and all of the things that are associated as Numbers 21 records for us. It is to that cesspool that's called the world that God in love so loved that he sent his son. But it also shows us the manifold love of God. And that's where we get the the Greek word mononganes, or we call it the only begotten son, the begotten, the unique, the one and only, the one-of-a-kind son. It's when we see Jesus in all of his uniqueness walking upon this world, talking to people, like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, the rich young ruler, Peter, Pilate, Matthew, the disciples as a whole, the Roman centurion, all of these accounts and many many more. Then when he preaches this incredible sermon at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we call it the Sermon on the Mount telling us about the values of the Kingdom of God. It's when we see Jesus in all of these different settings, it's as if, I'm using the word manifold here like the word prism. We know in Ephesians 3.10, it says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being declared. I want to submit to you that when you look at the life of the Lord Jesus recorded in John's gospel as well as all the other gospels, it's like Jesus is also showing to us something of a manifold nature. He is showing us a prism so that when the light of the gospel through his teaching, through his miracles, through his his acts of kindness and compassion, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he raised Jairus' daughter, when he healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever, when he touched the woman with internal bleeding and said... Daughter, your faith has made you whole. All of these instances and accounts is as if the light of the glory of God, the Father's revelation, refracts from Jesus' life so that you glean with every account in the Gospels and then later the apostles' reflections upon them in their writings and letters and epistles, It's like you glean and see a whole different light and understanding of the Father's love in sending the Lord Jesus. It shows us the manifold love of God. And then the final part of John 3.16, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It shows us the merciful love of God. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. As verse 17 says, but that the world through him might be saved. Oh, the depth of the mercy of God. That in the midst of this cesspool of a world that is full of hate, that is full of anger, that is full of conflict, that is full of of rebellion, all portrayed in Numbers 21 and more, God in his mercy would send, His one and only Son in love to show us His mercy and His love for us. I submit to you today, you can't understand John 3.16 without understanding John 3.14. And for tonight, as you come to the Lessons in Carol service, I want you to notice at the very end of the of the outline here today. I have a quote by John Calvin. For those who, in John Calvin's day as well as in ours, there were people who said, Well, how could God want to love me? You don't know my life, you don't know what I'm going through. You Calvin has some words for you. You know, he was a good friend of mine. You're supposed to laugh at that. Sixth, 16th century. You're mocking the love that God the Father has for the Son if you don't believe that God loves you enough. He gave you his Son. What more can he give you? So I want to ask you today here we are at another Christmas. What's that song? It's Christmas all over again. What's your John 3.16 world today? What's your world like today? Is there peace? Is there joy? Is there love? I pray that there is, but you know what? Some of us have been around the block a little bit in life and know that not all is well in the world today. There are marriages in our world. There are, I, you know, I'm not a spiritual x-ray technician, so I can't, I can't read here. But I know from life experience, for many people, when Christmas time comes around, it just blows up the world that they're living in. For some, it's the marriage conflicts that they're going through, the, the heartache. For some, it's the family conflicts that they're having to deal with. Oh, don't you love having Christmas dinner with all your family and friends and someone wants to bring up politics to talk about? Huh. And then there are a lot of unity that comes around that, huh? Oh, yeah. And then there's conflict that people have at work with their work associates, friends. Maybe in your neighborhood, you've got grief and struggle. There's some of you dealing with mourning in your life, like I was six and a half or so years ago when my beloved wife passed away. What's your John 3.16 world like today? It's to that world... It's to that world of relationships, whether they be in the marriage, in the home, in the world, in the work. Oh yes, uh, the church. There, there's relationship issues in the church. I almost forgot. And it's to that world, whatever world that you, that you find yourself in right now, the light and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is wanting to shine and to provide you healing as it did for the Israelites who looked at that pole with faith. They want to, br- that light of the love of God in Christ wants to give you hope, peace, assurance, joy. But the only way that that will happen in your life is when you open your life and surrender yourself to God and do what Nicodemus could not understand, but just simply say, Oh God, I give you my life and all the brokenness and hurt and and murmuring and and disgust that's in it, I give it all to you, and in your love would you take that and, and fill me with your love, that would cleanse and renew and heal me and give me the peace that I need. That's the joy of knowing John 3:16 and its meaning for your life at Christmas time, is that no matter where you are in your world, the light of the love of God will shine. So my prayer for you today is this. As you prepare to come tonight for the lessons and carols, look at the meditation from Calvin at the end of this. Ask yourself, God, do I really believe in your love for me? And reach out and receive it. And if you have conflicts or disturbances or issues in your work, in your neighborhood, in your marriage, in your your family, in the church, whatever those issues or conflicts may be, ask God to come in and bring healing and go in God's love and healing and talk about it with others and be reconciled to them and experience the peace and joy of Christmas, maybe for the first time in a long while. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God... So, that's the emphasis of the text, loved the world, you, your griefs, your conflicts, your murmurings, your unfulfilled expectations. He loved you so much that he gave his one unique, and only Son that you may have life in him through faith. That's the message of John 3.16 in light of John 3.14. Think about it. Let's bow in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around, Just this is your opportunity on Christmas Eve to get your heart right with the Lord. I don't know what your world is, but I do know that if it's anything like the brokenness of our world, it's a world that is hurting fill of grief and mourning and strife, at times anger. Now is the opportunity for you to just say, God, I'm going to release all of this conflict, this anger, this rebellion, this murmuring, this cesspool of brokenness. I'm going to release it all to you. And I'm asking you, God, to fill me with your love. And then, filled with your love, help me to go and to be a giver of love to all of those worlds to which I go to that need love and need reconciliation. Just pray something like this. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, right now. Cleanse me from the stuff of my world. The stuff that so often brings me down, breaks me, cripples me at times, emotionally and spiritually. Bring your love, Lord Jesus, into my world. That helps me see the love of the Father. And as you cleanse me, Lord, help me to go to my family, my marriage, my my children, my grandchildren, my neighborhood, my work, and yes, even here in the church for that matter, to those that perhaps I have brokenness with. And to all those areas, Lord, help me to bring peace and love and healing. Give me your Holy Spirit, I pray. Lord, you've heard those prayers that have been offered, and I ask and pray that you would shed the light of your love to each person here who reaches out to you in faith. We ask this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen.